Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Aaron Leonard, and you're listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about the front. Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am... Your host, Andras Jones, and today we have a special guest co-host. He is Aaron Leonard, the author of The Folk Singers and the Bureau, also been a guest on Radio 8 Ball, so fans of Radio 8 Ball will remember him from his recent appearance on that show, and he's kind of an expert in the blacklist, and that's why he's here. So welcome to The World is Wrong, Aaron. Oh, good to, good to be back, Andres. Yeah, it's kind of like that scene in Annie Hall where Woody Allen pulls Marshall McLuhan out. You're kind of like, you're that for me. Like when, when The Blacklist comes out, I'm like, no, you don't know about The Blacklist. Let's bring in this expert, Aaron Leonard. Well, uh, could you set the bar just a little bit higher for me, please? <laughs> okay. So we're here to talk about The Front. And before I get into playing a clip, is there anything just in general you'd like to say about being invited to come here and talk about the front before we get into the synopsis and everything? Well, you know, I I remember seeing the movie when it came out in 1976. So this uh, actually ended up being a kind of a helpful nudge to go revisit it. So thank you for that. But uh, no, I'll just... uh, Hold my thoughts until we we jump in proper. Okay, well then let's just go to a clip from the film and afterwards we'll come back and talk about it. Howard, I can't work anymore. Yeah, what? Like writer's block? What? You're not sick, are you? Blacklist. Yeah, but you you feel okay. I feel terrible. (laughs) But you're healthy. I mean, besides your Elsa. Howard, they won't buy my scripts. I'm on a blacklist. You know what that means? It's a list of names. Studios have them, the networks, the ad agencies. You're on the list, you're marked, you don't work. What difference does it make if I'm healthy? Well, you know, it makes a difference. What are you you blacklisted uh, for? I'm a communist sympathizer. You always were. Well, it's not so popular anymore. Hey, how many times have I told you, take care of number one? All right, who can you sue? Nobody. Nobody admits there's a blacklist. I mean, they just say, uh, your script's not good enough, you're not right for the assignment, you know, that kind of thing. Hey, I know some people. They're not exactly people. 
but for $50, they'd break a few legs and you're not bothered anymore. Not what I need. What, you need money? Not to know a stock, believe it or not, which is low right now, but it's going through the roof. I need another name. Yeah, I can see that. Um, Rappaport. Alf Alfred Rappaport, Arnold Rappaport. Pseudonyms don't work. They know we're all changing our names. I need a real person, Howard. Oh, of course. Someone that they can believe and I can trust. Naturally. Now listen, I wouldn't ask you to do this, but... What would you ask? I'd be insulted. Well, nobody know about it, just you and me. When do we start? Now just wait a minute. You better find out what you're getting into. You, you, you want to put my name on your scripts? But it's not that simple. I write the scripts. I send them in under your name. They buy the scripts, right? It's perfect. Then they're going to want to meet the writer. So? So you're going to have to go in there, really be the writer. So I'll be the writer. What's the big deal? I can do it. And I want to do it. I'm your friend. You're in trouble. What's a friend for? Well, these days you can get in trouble being friends. Life is risk. And I'm going to pay you for this, Howard. What do you mean, hey, what is that, a friend takes money? 10% from each script and no arguments. You can use the money, you're always in hock, and uh, I'd be paying that much to an agent anyway. 10%? Off the top. Well, how much you get for a script? Oh, $750, $1,000. It depends on the show. Go home and write. Your troubles are over. Even though Woody Allen didn't direct The Front from 1976, it still feels like one of the most Woody Allen films in the same way The Third Man, which was directed by Carol Reed, feels like one of the most Orson Welles movies. Coming one year before the Academy Award-winning Annie Hall in 77, which really began Allen's reign as the great American film auteur of the 1970s and 80s, The Front is a comedy about the blacklist. It's not a funny topic, and this film, directed by Martin Ritt, blacklisted 1951, written by Walter Bernstein, Blacklisted 1950, and co-starring Zero Mostel, Herschel Bernard, Lloyd Goff, and Joshua Shelley, Blacklisted in 1950, 53, 52, and 52 respectively, is necessarily not a goof in any way, and yet it is still a funny movie in the way Brazil or Adaptation or Dr. Strangelove are funny movies. Sometimes the front actually feels like the wind beneath Larry David's comic wings, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's a big influence on him. In the front, Alan plays a cashier and sometimes bookie named Howard Prince, who is asked by his friend, a blacklisted TV writer played by Michael Murphy, to be a front for him in the scene you just heard. Alan agrees to pretend to be a writer, mostly for the money, then for the girl, and then for the power that comes from being known as a great talent. Watching Howard Prince develop pretensions as a writer feels like, I don't know, some proto-George Costanza bit, and there's 
Even a part where Alan's prince has to write on the set with Michael Murphy rushing over to deliver some script revisions, basically through the window, as in a famous Seinfeld scenario. But this film is only partially concerned with getting laughs. Zero Mostel, as the beloved Jewish comedian Hecky Brown, who has come under the Kafkaesque gaze of the film's version of the House Un-American Activities Committee, gives a pained and sweaty and heartbreaking performance that is based in part on his own experience as a blacklisted actor, as well as on that of his friend Philip Loeb, who, like Mostel's Hecky Brown character, took his own life when he was targeted by the blacklist. This suicide is what motivates Alan's prince to become a hero in the film's final moments in a scene I'll play at the end of this episode. I feel like we're mostly going to talk about Woody Allen, but... Martin Ritt is the director of many great films, including Norma Ray, HUD, and one of my favorites, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. How the World Is Wrong About This Film is about pretty much every way possible. Our cultural understanding of the anti-communist purges in America after World War II is deliberately murky and distorted, as is our cultural understanding of Woody Allen after decades of tabloid drama. Now, I know tabloid drama doesn't really tell the whole story, but the fallout from Woody Allen's relationship with Mia Farrow is such a cultural Rorschach test that to be more specific than that is to court exactly the kind of distracting conversational devolution that makes it hard for most people to take on the front or Allen's work in general on its own merits, let alone the charges leveled at him in the press, though not in the courts where he has regularly been found innocent. In this way, just as a rational discussion of socialism in the 1950s was threatened by reactionary prejudice, today it is frightening to engage a conversation about Woody Allen, especially in a positive way, without risking guilt by association. These are the themes explored in The Front, which I think makes it a perfect film to explore here on The World is Wrong. Now, Aaron, what's your history with this film? Well, you know, I saw the movie when it was released uh, in the mid-70s. You know, I liked it at the time. I, I didn't think it was all that radical, kind of a left liberal take on the second Red Scare, you know. And I thought it was amusing and, you know, fairly entertaining and, you know, had a good point of view. Um, but I didn't, you know, as I say, I didn't see it as all that radical. But then watching it again and and kind of looking at it, um, you know, relative to what's going on today, uh, you know, for example, the movie Trumbo, which deals with, you know, similar subject matter. Dalton Trumbo was one of the Hollywood 10 who was sent to jail for a prison, jail for a year for uh, refusing to answer questions in front of Congress, you know, you look at the two movies uh, back to back and uh, 
Trumbo is a lot more saying, well, you know, uh, you know, this is America and this is a land of freedom. And Dalton Trumbo didn't answer questions because, you know, that's that's not what America is all about. I mean, there's this uh, confrontation he has with uh, the John Wayne character at the opening of Trumbo, where, you know, Trumbo makes a big uh seen, you know, talking about his military experience, his comrades' military experience, and kind of points to John Wayne and where were you during World War II. So what comes through is the real patriots, you know, were people like Dalton Trumbo. I mean, it mentions that he was a communist. It doesn't make too much of a, a deal of it. You know, it's not a bad movie, and it's it's good for what it is, but you compare it to the front, which is basically saying, you know, uh, some of these people were communists, some of them were supporters, and that's why they were being targeted. And, and that's the central issue. Um, and it's made in the mid-70s, so it's coming off of the whole upsurge of the 60s. You know, it's like for the first time um, in a couple decades, we can actually talk about the second Red Scare. You know, some of the uh, the repressive veil has been lifted. Um, so it's a, uh, you know, it's dealing with the subject matter a little bit more starkly, and it's not portraying this, you know, wonderful great United States. I mean, people in the mid '70s had a lot more skepticism, and they had been disabused of a lot of things about, you know, the claims of the United States versus the actuality. So, you know, that's my history. I saw it, but. But then I saw it again, and I actually saw a different film uh, than the one I saw in the mid-'70s, something that, you know, I think actually, you know, people would benefit from from going back and looking at it as far as what it has to say. Yeah, so that was your experience at the time. You'd say it's different now. What did you notice in it now that jumped out at you? I mean, it it was a lot more forceful in you know, saying that, that a huge swath of, well, it, it's, it focuses on this, le this section of the intelligentsia or her writing, but you do get the sense that this, this was a very broad societal purge um, and that, you know, people had to go to extremes. And, you know, the film is entertaining and it has this, you know, interesting character of Howard Prince you know, to unfold the story, but underneath it is a whole societal effort to banish a section of the intelligentsia from U.S. society because they're communists. And uh, it doesn't hold any punches. I mean, you know, the ending, which I'll talk about in a little bit, is, you know, it's a it's an odd ending. It's It's very optimistic, but it's also not a Hollywood ending in the kind that you would expect. Um, and, you know, the acting is really good. And, uh, you know, it's an engaging story. And Woody Allen is not the usual Woody Allen. You see, you know, you know to be candid, Woody Allen has never been a particular favorite of mine. I, I mean, some things I've liked, but the whole level of neurosis, self-doubt and angst is, is not something I've had much of an appeal for. So this film, he stands out as a little bit clearer you know, he's actually a, a character in a movie and he's playing a role. There's a little, little of Woody Allen in there, but um, he's actually more 
an actor as part of an ensemble that's that's trying to put forward this story. So, you know, I, I, I guess I just liked it a lot better, uh, both for the contrast to, uh, you know, what one sees on this topic today, where everything seems to be reduced down to Joe McCarthy, you know, the McCarthy era. You know, we don't talk about the second Red Scare. People, I don't even, most people probably don't even know what they that is. They talk about the McCarthy era. So it's all kind of uh, put on this single politician. Um, and, you know, they, they don't have a sense of a broader societal purge. Uh, and also there's an awful lot of uh, uh, mythology. Well, you know, people were accused of being communist and there's not quite the uh, acknowledgement that people, you know, some of these and a good number of them were actually communist because that was a thing in the 30s and 40s, and, it, and it's not now. So, you know, I, I found much more to like about it this time around. Well, you kind of opened up a little bit of a, a can of worms in a good sense in terms of your expertise and why I have you here. Are there some particular points, you sort of hinted at it there, particular points about uh, the red scares in America that you think would help people to understand this film better if they knew more about them? Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I watched the movie and I'm realizing that, you know, communism in the thirties and forties into the early fifties was a thing. You know, the U S had won world war two, the Soviet union had won world war two and they were like squaring off against each other and the United States, you know, the, uh, standing political and social authority made a conscious decision to drive communism from the public square, to drive it from Hollywood, uh, to drive it from literature, to drive it from the unions. You know, my book, uh, The Folk Singers in the Bureau, which just came out this past September, goes at length into how in 1947, um, Harry Truman, in consultation with Martin Dees, who was head of the original House Committee on Un-American Activities, you know, they consulted one another about what needed to be done. And, you know, among the things that they said is, you know, we need to banish communists from the unions. We need to deport any immigrant, you know, who's a communist, who, you know, doesn't have citizenship protection. Um, and... And, you know, this coincided with hearings about in the House Committee on Un-American Activities about communist infiltration in Hollywood. I mean, and, and this is where the case of the Hollywood 10 came from. You know, they called these 10 Hollywood writers. It was actually 11 because it included Bertolt Brecht in front of Congress to asked them if they were a member of the Communist Party. And all of them, uh, with the exception of Brecht, basically refused to answer. And they were all held in contempt. And they were sent to prison for a year, including Dalton Trumbo. Bertolt Brecht basically said, look, I'm not a communist, but, you know, I've worked with them. And, you know, because, you know, my art speaks to a lot of people. He left the country the next day. I mean, what's shocking is... You know, Bertolt Brecht was in the United States because he had fled Nazi Germany. So it's, you know, he's fleeing one type of repression for another 
repression um, because they were in contempt of Congress, because they refused to answer, they didn't have any constitutional protections. You know, later, if you took the constitutional protection of uh, not wanting to incriminate yourself, the Fifth Amendment, you might get away with not being charged with contempt. But as far as society was concerned, that was an admission that you were a communist. The Hollywood 10, by the way, this is not uh, commented on much, is they were called there because Congress had copies of their Communist Party membership cards. So, you know, they were dealing with actual documentation. This was not a matter of, you know, like in the movie The Front, you have this character, Hecky Brown, who claims his only affiliation with the party was, you know, attending a May Day demonstration and some meetings, you know, because he was interested in a particular woman. I wrote what you asked. I was duped. I didn't know what I was doing. I'll never do it again. What more can I say? That's up to you. I have to work. I can't get work, Mr. Hennessy. The doors are closed in my face. My own agent, 30 years. He won't even answer my telephone calls. I appreciate your situation. I do, Mr. Brown. I've helped people in your situation. Then help me, please. Tell me. I'll turn myself inside out. I'll do everything you tell me to do. You make that difficult to believe. What else can I do? I'll do it. Believe me. You don't know what I'm going through. I'd like to believe you, but I have the feeling you're not being entirely frank. Give me a for instance. You'll see. I promise. You marched in a May Day parade. Only because of that girl with the big ass. Whose name you say you can't remember? Oh, what was her name? Tessie, Bessie. I wasn't interested in her name. I was interested in her body. Other people marched in that parade. Other actors, directors. You don't remember their names either? I'm terrible with names. They remember you? I'm a well-known personality. You talk with these people? Some of them. Some were kind enough to write letters. Then you know who they are. So it's not so important that I remember. You know already. Your sincerity is important. Your desire to cooperate fully. I told you what I did! I apologize! I come to you on my hands and knees, Mr. Hennessy, please. All I want to do is work. That's all I care about. I have a wife, two growing boys, children. Look. Here, here. Plus a wife from before. If the alimony doesn't come, I sold my car last week for peanuts, a brand new model. All the money I made, I asked myself, where did it go so fast? I can't pay the rent, Mr. Hennessy. Nothing can go out if it doesn't come in. Do you know Howard Prince? You know, these, the Hollywood 10 were, you know, in the Communist Party, you know, as far as Congress was concerned, and, and they had that evidence. So, um, so, you know, watching the front and talking, hearing about the blacklist or hearing about the, Mac the McCarthy era, um, I'm actually struck by how little I knew about the actuality of it, how much I knew it was actually a matter of, you know, you at the U.S. government saying, you know, we're not going to have something akin to Euro-communism in the United States. You know, we're in France and Italy. You had these influential communist parties that 
you know, had little minority voices in the government, the U.S. was saying, we're not going to have that at all. And that's, you know, that's what the blacklist was about. It wasn't just, uh, you know, some something of having an aversion to radicals writing for Hollywood. Actually, the testimony uh, in the Hollywood uh, 10 uh, case, you know, they actually had some of the big producers. I forget who it was. I don't, I don't want to give a wrong name. I could go back and find it for you some other way at another point. But one of the big producers said, look, no communist doctrines, you know, gets into our scripts. We have producers and producers who read this stuff. You know, so we, we know there's communists working in the film industry, you know, but they're not going to put forward a party line. We're going to catch it and it's it's not going to go in there. So that really wasn't the issue of somehow communist ideology was coming through in the movies. Um, the issue was we're not going to legitimize communists by allowing their name to go on the script. And just one last point. I mean, if you look at the movie Trumbo, you know, the, the films he's doing, the films he's quote unquote getting away with doing, they're not political movies, you know, except for Spartacus. But Spartacus happens when things are changing in the early 60s. Um, so, you know, that's a point, too. One thing that I always want to point out to people when talking about communism in America is that it was focused on communists, but it was also focused on civil rights activists. It was focused on union activists. It, it became, yes, tar communists were targeted, but also people with like the idea of fellow travelers. Do you want could you uh, talk a little bit to the concept of fellow travelers? Well, you know, the Communist Party itself, you know, is not large, even at its largest. I mean, at the end of the 40s, you know, they maybe had 100,000 people, pe people who were members, you know, it was probably, you know, considerably less than that, maybe 70, 80,000. And among that, you know, how many of them are really kind of trained, disciplined Marxist-Leninist? I mean, it's a, it's a broader membership. So first, you know, the party isn't that big, um, but they do exercise influence. I mean, that, that's the thing, you know, is leadership actually matters. And the communists, you know, with their organizational ability, were able to work in these various movie, movements. I mean, in the 30s into the 40s, the work they did against lynching was, you know, exemplary and standout and incredibly brave. You know, they didn't do it in sheer numbers of their own people. They did it by working with coalitions. And, you know, they were like the ones who were willing to stick their neck out. And when you have people willing to stick their neck out, you embolden others to join with. So that's why the notion of fellow travelers, you know, people who are supportive, if not cadre themselves, is, you know, is part of the equation. I mean, uh, the pursuit of Martin Luther King wasn't that they thought he was a communist. It was that he had a couple communists in his organization uh, and somebody the FBI thought was a communist, but couldn't quite prove it. And they were worried, you know, that influence in the SCLC um, would be detrimental to U.S. national security. Uh, you know, arguably that's, you know, kind of a folly. 
but you know that's what it's predicated on is the group's wider influence so the powers that be as it were we're, we're going after the whole package you know the communists themselves and people who were supportive of them because they wanted this to be an absolutely marginalized philosophy you know that was seen as a pariah ideology in u.s society and they succeeded you know even down to today uh people don't openly call themselves communists i mean first off it's just assume there are no communists i mean and i think the new generation has picked up this moniker of socialism um to try to get rid of the stigma of communism and, and a lot of it is the legacy of of this period in the past. So yeah, the fellow travelers are part of the equation, but the other thing that's gotten kind of flipped is in popular culture, you get very few people identified as communists and people are instead called fellow travelers. Woody Guthrie, I've done a lot of digging into his background and, you know, he's considered a fellow traveler, you know, oh, well, you know, Woody was, too undisciplined to actually join the party. But if you look into his past, uh, there's evidence that at least for a short period of time, he was a member. Uh, and Dorothy Healy, who was a leading communist LA said, well, you know, Woody, I don't know if he was in the party or not, but he was the closest thing to it, which gives a different definition to fellow traveler in that sense. Maybe he wasn't carrying a card, but as far as his, uh, affinity and loyalty to that ideology, it was it was right up there. I mean, you, if you look at the popular culture, it seems like hardly anybody except for maybe Gus Hall was in the Communist Party. But in fact, you know, Dalton Trumbo was in the Communist Party. And like I said, the uh, others in the Hollywood 10 actually had Communist Party membership cards. So it was not just a, uh, an exaggerated thing. And, you know, so what, you know? I mean, it was at the point they were engaging in legally protected activity. I mean, the second Red Scare attempted to criminalize that, and it did effectively do so. But being a communist was not like somebody who, you know, was was engaging in the most maligned, taboo behavior. I mean, they just wanted a society free of capitalism. Um, but that was not something that was going to be tolerated. I'm kind of curious, you know, we're we're a movie podcast and I'm just curious, are there any particular scenes that you remember from the film that jumped out at you that either you thought were particularly funny or particularly heartbreaking or you felt really hammered home some of these ideas in a way that you found compelling or moving? Well, there's two 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 things I really liked. You know, so you got this Hecky's story, you know, Zero Mostel, who's acting in this is really great. He's a lovable, troubled character who you get mad at at times. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, so he's kind of, he's on this popular TV show. He's got a name, he's famous. And they're basically saying you're done because, you know, you have a communist affiliation and you haven't properly renounced that. Um, and he goes through all kinds of twists and turns. And then there's this totally wrenching scene where he checks into a hotel, orders a nice bottle of, I guess, champagne, and he's dancing and he's being himself. And then, you know, the, the next scene you see, he's clearly decided to end his life because 
he can't go on this way. He can't not be, you know, hecky. Uh, and basically, you know, the authorities in the United States are telling him, you can't be hecky. Uh, so that was um, totally not sugarcoated, but it, but it's, uh, in terms of film, it was done in such a beautiful way as not to be maudlin. Um, you know, it just kind of took your breath away and you know, stayed with you. And then the ending is really good, too, because, you know, Woody Allen ends up doing the right thing and he doesn't get away with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he's going to have to uh, deal with, you know, the laws of the land as a result of the stand he took. But the movie portrays it in a very positive light, um, you know, with a little bit of humor, you know, because you don't quite see the handcuffs until the end. Uh, but it was really a good way to end it. Uh, you know, my my wife and I are always talking about the difference between because she's frankly more sophisticated than I, than I am on a number of things. Uh, the way they make films in Europe and France, in particular, and the way they make them in the United States and. In the United States, it's always happy. The good guys win and evil is vanquished. But, you know, in this story, you know, the good guys didn't win. Evil wasn't vanquished, but you felt like, well, something good happened here. So, you know, I really like that. Yeah, he went from being, I guess the, the film makes a very good case for the idea, which is very, a very 1976 in America kind of idea that there is just real soul value in doing the right thing, in making the right, the integrity choice. And even though he pays the, you know, he 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 sort of pays the price, but also his life is significantly better in the context of the film than when he was working as a bookie for Danny Aiello and just hanging out in that bar. Although, I mean, it's, I mean, it's like, it's the classic sort of hero story. He's a, a normal everyman who gets drawn into engagement with justice or injustice and has to develop himself. I think it's funny because he develops himself pretending to be a writer, which is, I don't know. Woody Allen is such a writer. He, you know, he is of Hollywood writers. He is the one who looks most like a, the kind of guy you imagine being a writer. Uh, and, you know, with just the, the glasses and the bookish, you know, nebbishy thing. And the fact that that thing, which is his image, becomes a fakery. Grand Central is one of the few television shows where the writer is really the star. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of other people, too. You know, I mean, wonderful people. I certainly understand the importance of actors and, and directors. Did you write in high school? Did I write in high school? Mm-hmm. Well, every you had to. <laughs> I don't know. That's the part of the movie that I just, beyond the historical story and the sadness, there's something in it that I just find, the more I've been focusing on it, strangely, the funnier the movie gets in the sense of just the movie when I've uh, for years, I've thought about it because I saw it when I was a kid, probably too young to see it. And it really affected me, particularly Hecky's uh, suicide. And all of that is tragic and the story is tragic, but watching Woody Allen pretend to be a famous writer 
or a successful writer is gets funnier with each what with with each watching for me i don't know about you uh, no no that's a good point it's uh I'm trying to think if they, they made it today, they would what, what kind of character they would put in there. But it, he would be cinematically handsome, maybe a little sarcastic, but he wouldn't be Woody Allen. So there's a kind of a, like you say, there's kind of a, a meta thing going on, right? He, he looks like a writer. He acts like a writer. He's not really a writer, but he's pretending to be a writer. So it's, you know, it's it's kind of trippy stuff. I did want to add, because as you were speaking, I was I was thinking you know so the ending happens the way it does and it's it's kind of like you know what defines your life boy it, it's really out of your hands right i mean all of a sudden you're in a position and then there's this this moment that's going to more define you than anything else and you know you don't get a notice the day before you know you don't get any time to prepare but it's like uh, you know, what this Woody Allen character does in the end is the most, most important thing he would ever do. If all he ever did was a front, being a front for these writers, you know, it's not that important if he was a front and he got away with it. It's kind of like, okay, that's interesting. What's, what's important is, you know, he was forced into taking a stand and, you know, that's going to define who he is either way, good or bad. So it's, uh, I mean, there's there's that, too. And, you know, people need that. Right. I mean, people need these kind of grown up values that, um, you know, it may be in life. You're going to be confronted with making a decision that's going to define who you are. And it's not necessarily going to be easy or even pretty. So it's uh, and I don't think you get that too much from movies. I mean, you get people confronted with taking a stand, they do, and happily ever after. You know, they don't go to prison. You know, they don't lose everything, you know. And they don't, uh, you know, they don't get uh, lauded in their lifetime. It just is. And, you know, history then judges you and stuff. But as human beings operating in society, you know, having that long vision is something of consequence and something we all could benefit from appreciating more because, you know, the world is, you know, as you say, the world is wrong. And if it's going to be righted, you know, there's a lot of challenges ahead uh, in that respect. People are going to confront and have to meet. Yeah, I, I'm kind of curious because you mentioned Trumbo and the film Trumbo ends with an aged Dalton Trumbo played by Brian Cranston giving a very conciliatory speech saying, you know, for those who didn't stand up, it was a hard time. You know, you should be forgiven. We should, we need, you know, we were, it was a hard time for all of us. Uh, it's a, it's a moving speech. And I think on a sort of a spiritual person to person level, there's, a lot of truth there but as you say it's also kind of maybe one of the things that softens the film a little bit in terms of history and i just i'm kind of curious it makes me think about when you're talking about woody allen's character's choice in the front it makes me think about Ilya kazan and the continuing controversy he I'm sure people who know this know he was a, a incredibly well-respected director of theater and film, 
that really spoke to working class issues and was he was part of that uh, sort of, I don't know, didn't he come out of the group theater with Eugene O'Neill? And he just he was one of those. He 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 was definitely a fellow traveler. And as the story goes, he named some names depending upon, you know, if you look at like the front, it's like he's someone who was willing to tell them what they wanted to hear. And he is definitely borne the brunt of a lot of cultural damnation from, from myself as well. It, but at the same way, in the same way, also kind of a scapegoat because he was, he's one of many who did, did this and somehow he has to carry the burden of it. And so he's a really conflicting figure for me because the part of me that wants to stand up for artists and stand up against scapegoating wants to have his back, but the, I still find it very hard to forgive him uh, because of exactly all the stuff we're talking about. I'm just curious, do you have a particular take on Ilya Kazan? Uh, you know, I, I'm i glad you raised that, and I'm puzzling how to approach it, you know, because uh, I, I, not too long ago I actually watched On the Waterfront, and I'm like, you know, what's up with this movie, right? Okay, <laughs> Yeah, that, know, one's, that one's the weird told- one. <laughs> Yeah, it's full of nuance and the acting is great, et cetera, et cetera. But is, you know, but it's like, uh, look, we choose to tell the stories we tell. I am not a vindictive person. The older I get, the um, the less appeal I have for just, you know, being bitter about, you know, wrongs uh, perceived or mis- misperceived, you know, against me or, or you know, in the larger society. You know, I, I just... I'm not a big advocate of punishment, punishment and revenge. I don't think it's particularly helpful. But you know, you know, it's like I'm tired of hearing about Elia Kazan and how great on the waterfront were. What about the people who went to prison, you know, for this stuff? You know, what about the Hollywood Ten who, you know, you know, you know, upstanding members of society spending a year in jail because they refused to cooperate with Congress? I mean, people don't know who they are. Their stories are told in little PBS clips here and there. Uh, you know, Pete Seeger has kind of gotten a little bit more attention, but he's kind of the exception. But we constantly hear this churning debate, or Burl Ives, for that matter, as another person who cooperated with the House Committee on, on American Activities. We hear a good deal less. I've looked at a lot of these transcripts. A lot of people went in front of Congress and they did what Woody Allen did. They said, go fuck yourself. And they paid a price for that. And these are not heroes in U.S. society. You know, Robert Shelton, right? And I was reading, he was called in front of the House Committee on Un-American Activities because the committee um, served the subpoena to the New York Times. It was mistakenly given to Robert Shelton. He was called in. But I'm Harry Stone, the actor. It's the other Harry Stone, the director. He's the one you want. I'm blacklisted because they think I'm him. I understand. I'm innocent. I never joined anything. A terrible mistake has been made. I sympathize. Unfortunately, I can only help people who are willing to make a clean breast of what they've done. But I haven't done anything. That's why I can't help you. Uh, This was in the late-ish 50s. He was asked if he was a communist. He refused to answer. There's no evidence that he was a communist. Uh, and he was put on trial and he was, you know, I think he spent like five years fighting off 
uh, prison time for this, right? Nobody knows this story except uh, if you happen, you know, to be reading this or that book. It's it's kind of inserted in literally a footnote in some things. Well, you know, I think that's actually kind of heroic. You know, Robert Shelton is basically telling this committee, you know, no, look, I'm not answering these questions, even though, you know, it was all a mistake. I mean, the committeeman said, oh, I'm surprised he even took that position because, you know, we didn't even really want to talk to him. We were worried about somebody mm-hmm. else. So um, as far as Elia Kazan goes, look, he shouldn't have cooperated. He did. OK, let's talk about the people who who pushed back. Um, because, you know, it wasn't until 1960 in Berkeley when uh, the so-called HUAC riot happened that the tables finally started to turn on this whole thing. A bunch of young students, along with, you know, older leftists, some communists, uh, confronted the House committee who were meeting in San Francisco City Hall, and, uh, you know, there was a scuffle that broke out with the police, the police opened fire hoses, you know, sprayed students down the steps of City Hall, and it became a whole national thing and a national debate. And it people started looking at at HUAC in a different way. And then, of course, you know, a year or two later, you had somebody like Jerry Rubin go in there with, you know, dressed up in a faux gorilla uh, with a toy gun, you know, just ridiculing the hell out of the committee, you know, and really stealing the power. You know, these are the stories I want to hear, not the people who were broken or forced to compromise. I mean, yes, let's tell those stories because um, because they happened and they're part of the, the truth. But uh, so, yeah, kind of a, I guess I'm a little opinionated. On oh, that, I love you know? it. I love it. I thought I'm so glad that my instinct uh, made uh, made me bring that up because I think you're absolutely right. That's a very, it's very much in keeping with our ethos that the world is wrong. It's like, Sure, there are bad films, but why talk about them when there are so many great films that could be talked about? Like, why talk about a sad case like Ilya Kazan when you could talk about an inspiring and heroic case like the cases embodied in this character of Howard Prince, who is the one who goes before them and says, no, you know, you're you're a bunch of idiots. No, I won't play your game. You know, even... Not even, and not in necessarily in a patriotic way, in a humanistic way, right? So I think that's great. I think that's fantastic. Are there any other stories like that in all of your study and writing around this? Stories of people who did challenge the anti-communism, the, that prejudice, the, the, the Red Scares, HUAC in general, that all, that all the apparatus around it stories of people who did fight back and, you know, either paid the price in a heroic way or in a sad way, or just any stories from that time that you feel like you'd like to see a movie made. It was on a Saturday night and the moon was shining bright. They passed the conscription bill and the people they did stay for many miles away was the president and his boys on capitol hill oh franklin roosevelt told the people yeah well you know millard lampell uh, was a member of the almanac singers in the early 40s and he was a writer 
he ended up winning an Emmy in the mid 60s. He, he was the person also who was one of the writers for Rich Man, Poor Man. So I think when he got his Emmy in the mid 60s, he kind of, kind of made a sly, ironic statement saying, oh, and by the way, I had been blacklisted. Well, when Lampel was called in front of HUAC in the early 50s, so, you know, he's called in there around the same time that Burl Ives is called. You know, Burl Ives is called in front of the committee and he names several people. You know, he's very, uh, you know, he's not happy about it. He's, he's not a raving anti-communist. He, he gives up the names because he thinks he needs to to protect his career and he he's not gleeful about it at all but you know he does it you know it's a choice Millard Lampel goes in and he's basically look you know this is this is not right what you're doing um, I think he refused to answer questions I, I would have to go back and actually look at my book the folk singers in the bureau but he didn't cooperate and then he released a statement afterwards saying you know look People told me I could finesse this and go on and have my career, but you know, look, there's more at stake than my career. You know, I'm a writer and you know, we have this um, commitment to truth and integrity and we gotta kind of hold up, hold up to it, hold it up or else it doesn't mean anything. I'm paraphrasing him, so please forgive me on that, but, but he takes a very bold stand. Yeah, Millard Lampel's story is something, you know, the children could learn something from, you know, I mean, it's like... And their parents, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's so there's that, you know, there's the, the hemming and hawing and hand-wringing, which, you know, look, I, I don't wish that on anybody to be put in that position, and nobody should be put in that position, but the reality is, in the grown-up world, you do end up in those situations. And then, you know, it's standing up in, the, in that position is extremely important. Um, you know, so Lampel's a good example of that. Um, uh, Alan Lomax, you know, the HUAC really wanted to get a hold of him because he was, according to Pete Seeger, he was a secret member of the Communist Party. He strongly suspected, my sense is, that the subpoena was coming. He left the country. Um, I mean, that's, and that was a defiant move, too. Um, not quite as defiant as Lampel's, but, you know, you know, I'm sure he had his reasoning for it. But the defiance was, uh, you know, you're not going to put me in that position. And, you know, he abandoned his prestigious position in the United States and, you know, had to kind of start anew in England to do that. So, you know, that aspect of Lomax's story, I mean, Lomax's um a character who there's there's a certain complexity to as well, but that aspect of his story, I think that's worth worth telling. And you know, then there's other people that uh, in the into the '60s. I mean, there's this guy uh, Steve Hamilton who was an anti-war activist. I mean, he told Congress, "Look, I you know you're killing people in Vietnam. You know, I, I'm not going to cooperate with you. You know, people need to know." Again, I'm paraphrasing. People need to know, you know, what the real deal is, and that's what I'm involved in, and I'm not apologizing for it. And you know, you know, you know, your business is bad business. You're doing bad things. So, you know, he was uh, kicked out of Berkeley, you know, for taking part in this free speech movement. He was arrested as one of the uh, Oakland Seven. He paid a price for for taking these stands, you know. So, so there it is. Who do you want to be, Ilya Kazan, you know, and 
Burr lives having to constantly be defined by the moral compromise, you know, that you were maneuvered into, or, you know, somebody who gave out, gave up a lot of what they might have been able to accomplish because they figured out they couldn't accomplish that with good conscience unless they, you know, stood their ground. So there it is. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I guess that kind of brings us back around to the blacklisted artists who made the front. So we have Martin Ritt, Walter Bernstein, Zero Mostel, Herschel Bernard, Lloyd Goff, and Joshua Shelley, which that in itself just seems like it's a mark of authenticity on this film that makes it worth talking about. It's like if, if five soldiers who survived uh, Normandy Beach made a movie about World War II, you'd be like, well, that's kind of, I, I would really like to see that movie. You know, Steven Spielberg, I'm no, I know your movie's probably really good, but this one, I, I think it's probably going to have something in it that is worth my time. And I feel like surviving the blacklist as artists and coming back to make this movie in the year of the bicentennial is, <clears throat> I don't know, it inspires me just without even seeing the movie. Like the movie could be m so much worse and still be worth my time if I knew it had that level of authenticity to it. And one of the things that strikes me about all of these folks is that they're all Jewish. And um, when you were talking about, especially when you're talking about Bertolt Brecht and his experience fleeing Nazi Germany to come to America and then having to flee America because he recognizes similar patterns, all of this sort of the unspoken, uh, I don't know, gas in the room is anti-Semitism. And I'm just curious if you could speak a little bit to how anti-communism and anti-Semitism were wrapped up historically at that time. You, you know, I'm, um, I'm not being self-deprecating. I'm not uh, fully schooled on all this. Um, I can say that, you know, Hitler and the Nazis, you know, didn't just hate, I mean, they presented um, their struggle as against Judeo-Bolshevism. So they actually conflated uh, you know, communism with Jewishness. Um, and they were savage. I mean, they were savage on Jews living in Germany, and they were savage when they invaded the Soviet Union, which is a another story I don't think has been told enough, um, but that's for another day. But um, you know, at the core, of Nazism was was a, a conflating of this um, these two things. You know, neither of which was in any way justified. Um, and I think that did translate back into the U.S. And you know, anti-Semitism in the U.S., and I'm sure that there's people who know a lot more about this than me, but my sense is that it is insidious and that it's so steeped into the culture that probably people don't even realize it. Um, I know I grew up in this, uh, you know, this uh, 
central New York, which was notoriously conservative. conservative. And I look back now on my coming up and the uh, prevalence of anti-Semitism, which was, you know, not attacking people or denying people jobs or anything, you know, starkly egregious. It was just a kind of an understanding, you know, a conflating of intellectuals with Jews and somehow uh, looking down on that. Well, you know, uh, you know, these intellectuals and Jews, they think they're special. They think they know, you know, they think they're better, blah, blah, blah. That's like an insidious anti-Semitism, which you could see being uh, seized on for, for a much better end. I, I don't think people in the United States have a deeper sense of anti-Semitism. I think, you know, everything that it questions uh, what Israel is doing to Palestine gets uh, you know reinterpreted as that's what anti-Semitism is, and I, I don't think that's what it is at all. What Israel is doing to the Palestinians is a very discreet, specific thing, which you know I think is wrong and ought not to happen. But that's you know it's not because people are Jewish, you know it's because of you know the state interests of that country. Um, and you know, you know, I was I was thinking about this as you were. I mean, you had actually sent me some of these questions ahead of time, and I was trying to think through them a little bit. And you know, I used to work at this radical bookstore in New York City, and once or twice a month, uh, somebody would come in. It was generally uh, a younger or middle-aged black man, and they would want a copy of uh, uh, Behold the. Uh, pale horse, I think it's called to ride the pale horse, uh, which is this uh, is this conspiracy theory novel, which basically reprints the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is this notoriously anti-Semitic tract, um, and they change up the definitions a little bit. Yeah, William Cooper wrote it. Uh, um, yeah. And and he changes Jews to Illuminati and Goyim to cattle. So, you know, they're among conspiracy theory buffs. You hear a lot about the Illuminati and cattle, which are really just, you know, code words for, you know, for Jews. And it's, so it's like a seriously anti-Semitic thing. But it's like, it's this is in the culture. You know, QAnon, right, is like looking at, yeah, Behold the Pale Horse, that's the name of it. QAnon is looking at this kind of stuff. This stuff is like, it's not just on the, the far right. You know, it's among people who are seeking out truth, and they're landing on this conspiracy stuff, which is, you know, seems like it's giving them a window into something that's being, you know, kept from them. But it's actually very insidious, nasty, and potentially very, very bad stuff. Um, so a bit of a, a ramble on the answer to say, um, you know, the anti-Semitism I don't think is, is well enough understood. And that probably goes for a lot of things in this society that things are kind of understood on the surface. And that's what I know. And I don't need to know anymore. And that's true when, in fact, you know, there's an awful lot um, that isn't known. So that, that's that's uh, probably the most I could I could say on that, I'm sure other people have a lot better insight than me. Uh, well, <clears throat> I think you're selling yourself short there. <laughs> Thank you. So 
I'm going to thank you with taking us into the, uh, I don't know, the, the nastiest thicket around this film and the, what we haven't really discussed at all, which is just Woody Allen. And as you heard from my intro, I feel like something about the dynamic around Woody Allen as a, a cultural figure in the last 20 years and particularly this year with Alan versus Pharaoh, the HBO documentary being out, uh, that there's just, there are dynamics around him that I feel like are explored in this film, looking backwards at the blacklist and, and anti-communism in America in just the way that it's difficult to talk about Woody Allen. Some people would rather not engage it. People who, may think he's innocent, but don't want to say that because it uh, it reflects poorly on them. And all of this, you know, you're certainly free to say no comment on. And even if you did, I'm curious if you have anything to say about just the parallel dynamics of why someone might want to plead the fifth when confronted with Woody Allen and HBO's documentary about him. You know, it is obviously it's very, uh, yeah, it is. Um, so I guess the word they use is controversial. So it's yeah, it's controversial. You know, one thing that struck me in thinking about this though is, uh, and I don't think this gets discussed very much, is, uh, you know, I, I think the far right in this country, but they've got to be really happy about this Woody Allen stuff. You know, they they hate him. <laughs> yeah. And I, I couldn't see like the far right liking the front, um, you know, Woody Allen. I, I think he's also been a, a pretty uh, strong advocate of atheism or at least, you know, agnosticism. So, you know, the religious right, you know, they they don't like Woody Allen. Um, and, you know, and they, I don't also don't think that they like the image of him as this famous director, you know, uh, he won the Academy Award in 1977. I remember reading one review saying, you know, look, it's kind of where America is right now that you have this self-doubting, neurotic guy winning the Academy Award and saying, you know, this is, I mean, the, the subtext was this is not the way we want, you know, the United States to appear in the world is, is unsure, frail, and and second-guessing itself. So I don't think the... I don't think the the you know the far right or the fascist right, whatever you want to call them, I, I think they've got to be happy to see Woody Allen, you know, taking his blows. Um, saying that, you know, uh, this is complicated because you know the good people are standing against Woody Allen, and they're not doing it for bad reasons. I mean, this whole notion that women suffer abuse even young women suffer abuse and for you know you know far too long they've been forced to keep their mouths shut and just deal with the agony of it um you know the the fact that you know a section of society is standing up and saying this has to stop these things need to be addressed and they need to be addressed you know forcefully i mean there's this is good i mean women you know women have had to deal with some pretty awful stuff. And so, you know, were Dylan's accusations true? And I'm not saying they aren't or are not, 
you know, you know, it's a good thing to go there. It's a good thing to say that when women bring forward these accusations, we need to take them extremely serious. Um, I guess where I where I make a distinction is uh, there's I guess there's this mantra believe women, which you know kind of gets at that, but I I feel like it needs to be believed, but you know you actually have to apply. Uh, critical scrutiny. You actually have to have the evidence. People need to be, you know, attempting to engage in a, a methodology where you can actually establish things that more or less correspond to to reality. And I, I feel like too much of what goes on is um, sensationalism, going for the heart, going for emotion. Uh, and then, you know, the media juggernaut in this country is such that uh, if the media, the major media, uh, sets on a consensus, uh, it's very hard to break that consensus. It's just mutually reinforcing all across the board. I mean, my sense right now is the consensus is that, well, you know, Woody Allen probably did something and he's a terrible person. And I, I don't know how that gets broken. Um, that's not so much my concern is, is you know, can you know? Are we actually going to be able to look at evidence-based scrutiny to come to a conclusion? You know, and I think that's far much more needed. I mean, in one sense, the Woody Allen case is uh, what is he? He's 85 years old. Um, he's you know not going to be around more. I mean, uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, certain people will watch his movies. Certain people won't. Um, in one sense, it's like, okay, it's a, it's an animated and passionate debate. On the other hand, it's like, to what degree is it the biggest issue in front of us? So there's that. But, but then for me, the biggest issue in front of us, and it applies to Woody Allen and it applies to all things, is, is you know, we need to turn the TV off more often. And just start thinking on our own. There's there's just this ability to find out so much information with uh, the advances in technology that you know we can actually learn some things beyond what's being spoon fed to us. I mean, you know, every paper and every TV has their own point of view. These are not neutral sources. I I was watching HBO's Succession, which uh, they make an insidious and almost subtly make the point uh, because, you know, succession is about the, uh, this, it's an allegory, I think, for Fox News. Definitely. And I think the, the lead character makes the point, you know, you know, we're there to tell people what to think. You know, this is not about informing people. We're telling people what and how to think. Um, and uh, being able to step out of that and and thinking in a different way you know, if we're going to have any kind of liberatory future, and, you know, I say that as ambiguous as that term might mean, I mean, I personally think that capitalism is at the core of a good amount of these problems. But if we're going to have that kind of liberatory future, you know, it can't be predicated on just accepting the terms that major established media, whether it be Fox News or MSNBC, lays down. There's more to the world than that. You know, get outside of those bounds. 
you know, because these folks, you know, they got their own agenda and they got their own advertisers and demographics they're trying to serve. And, you know, they're not necessarily your friends. I mean, they're, they're out there for their own interests. So it's a little bit of a, a ramble on that point, but is, which is to say, you know, we can get it uh, ways to evaluate these things. And so to bring it back around, it's like the, the, the Woody Allen stuff is tough because, you know, 20 years ago, none of this would be discussed. I mean, uh, look at the um, scandals in the Catholic Church. I mean, you know, that stuff was buried. It's still being buried. I mean, it still needs, I mean, what was it? Sinead O'Connor was like, she was chased from the public square for ripping up a picture oh, of the yeah. Pope. Oh yeah. Yeah, she was she was right. She was she way was, ahead of her time. Yeah, she was you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. Her ignorant people booed her yep. at a Bob Dylan commemoration of all things. Oh. And people are totally oblivious. Yeah. You know, Dylan was booed in sixty five when he did revolutionary cultural things, and then they had the 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 abundance of ignorance to boo Sinead O'Connor at that point. I mean, it's just um breathtaking but she was right the catholic church has done incredibly bad things and probably you know some of these old predators still are so you know you know these are not abstract issues that are some somehow they're all gone away and we just need to deal with an accounting you know these these things have to be dealt with but it's you know how you deal deal with them and whether or not you're applying critical thinking or not is uh, important. That's the best I can offer on that. I mean, the Woody Allen thing, I, people have their opinions at this point, and uh, it's almost uh, impossible just through discussion or argument, I think, to alter opinions. People change their opinions when, generally, when, you know, they, they hit a wall, you know. Uh, you know, that's, that's what happened with the Woody Allen character in uh, the front. He, he confronted uh, you know, the, you know, he was in way over his head. Suddenly, you know, other people's lives were affected by what he was, what he would or wouldn't say. Uh, and then he had to make a choice and he became something different uh, than he was at the beginning of the movie. And, uh, you know, the reality is I think people's opinions generally change when there's a deeper crisis, you know, something through I was listening to Wilco's Jesus, right? Something throws you out of your orbit. You know, what does it take to throw you out of your orbit? Um, but that's, uh, that's, I think, what's needed more to, uh, to look at these things in a different way. So yeah, yeah, I guess that's, that's about what I would say on that. Yeah. That's, that's perfect. I think if I may reflect back, I, 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 what I hear you saying, two things that really jumped out to me is one, talking about or thinking about Woody Allen at this point requires either a lot of critical thinking just to navigate it because it's complicated or a tremendous amount of belief that just you're right and you're not going to think about it. And the other thing that really jumped out was when you pointed out, oh, well, the far right has got to love this because the far right hates Woody Allen. And now the liberal consensus is that Woody Allen is a creep. And he also happens to be one of the great American 
film artists, whether or not you like him. He was incredibly popular and critically acclaimed for multiple decades and was managed to do it incredibly independently without any of the sort of accusations uh, that, you know, were across the board in the film industry that Woody Allen firmly rejected. And while he was employing a lot of women and writing great roles for women. So it's just like, it's, there's, there's a cognitive dissonance that you have to engage around this. And this film, the front sort of brings all of that to bear without actually being a Woody Allen film, which is, I'll be honest, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to smuggle this in here. It's like, well, this is, I don't want to watch Woody Allen films. Okay, well, how about Martin Ritt films? How about films made by blacklisted writers that Woody Allen lent his celebrity to at a point when he was at his most successful as a sort of a media personality? And, you know, we're here to celebrate films. And I certainly have, I mean, I think we all have, like you said, we all have our opinions about this story that none of us actually have any experience with for the most part and so excuse me and that requires you know navigating that requires a lot of critical thinking which without it we're doomed in a lot of other ways so we can either i feel like we can either choose to take on these complicated conversations with a willingness to be open to all of reality around it and not just partitioning that and basing our opinions upon you know, either my loyalty to Woody Allen or someone else's loyalty to the other parties in this, you know, in that case. Uh, I just feel like I love all the complexity that you bring to looking at it. And it reflects, I feel like my own complexity and trying to navigate it because I can't stop seeing these films as American masterpieces that express something that if it's removed from our conversation about cinema means, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, uh, it means that that, in a way that anti-communism that is anti-Semitism wins. If we just say, well, he's a creep. And so all of these films are bad and prove, and you can find creepiness all throughout them. Well, what about the front? (laughs) Anyway, that's uh, one good rant deserves another. And I feel like that's kind of the place we've got to in this. Are there any uh, final points about the front that you'd like to make that you feel like are, are uh, you you haven't yet expressed? There was just one thing that didn't get discussed was uh, uh, the role of the freedom information. What was it called? The, the portrayal of... Uh, the institution that was basically blacklisting people. We didn't really talk about that, but it was actually uh, modeled after uh, an actual thing, which was this publication called Red Channels, which was done by this group called Counterattack. And they actually uh, compiled the lists of people who were communist or had communist associations. I just thought, uh, you know, the film actually dealt with that pretty good. It's uh, the Freedom Information Services. Yeah, so that, that's a real thing. And uh, and Hecky tries to get off it. And, and so this is something, and maybe it does kind of relate back to overall um, 
So Hecky Brown goes and he prostrates himself in front of the Freedom Information Service. And they say, well, you know, Hecky, you've got to write a letter uh, to convince us that you don't like communism. And Hecky writes the letter and they're like, well, this is not good enough. You know, in writing my book, Folk Singers in the Bureau, uh, the Tamament Library at NYU actually has the files uh, for counterattack and red channels. And uh, I was looking at the file of Oscar Brandt, who is famous radio person. He's on the radio for 60 years promoting folk music. He was targeted uh, by red channels. I think his name appears in the book. Uh, and he tried mightily to avoid getting printed in the book. And then he worked to get cleared. I mean, they called it being cleared if you could convince red channels that you didn't have anything to do with communism. So uh, Oscar Brand actually goes to them and uh, he writes a letter. And uh, the comments red channels make afterwards is, is, you know, this is not good enough. It's like the problem is, is these people, it's not just that they're uh, promoting their ideas and insinuating their ideas into society. It's that they legitimate this stuff. They boost the morale of the communists, you know, so they strengthen them. So, you know, to paraphrase, nothing short of a unequivocal break is going to be acceptable. What Oscar Brand had to do to get off the list and, you know, this was something, you know, I discovered in writing about him is uh, because if you read his obituary, he just died a couple years ago. If you read his obituary in the New York Times, they say, well, Oscar Brand was never called in front of HUAC. Well, it's not exactly true. Um, he uh, had a private meeting with them. Um, and in that way, you know, he was able to convince them uh, that he shouldn't be on their list. And this was only after he publicly denounced communism at a meeting at uh, the Cooper Union in New York City. You know, so you know, Oscar Brand tells this story of, well, I was uh, blacklisted by both the left, who accused me of, uh, of backstepping on communism and my affiliation, and the right, who you know, tried to get me blacklisted. But the reality is Oscar Brand was never taken off the radio. He had a very long career because he was able to somewhat quietly uh, get off the list. So in that sense, and this, it brings us back to the front, which is, uh, you know, yeah, you can, you can, you know, Woody Allen does it at the end of the movie, right? He's, he's talking to Huack and he's, First, he's going to be clever. Well, you know, I'm, you know, he gives these silly answers and he tries to deflect. Um, but it's clear in the film that he can't. You know, you know, maybe he can kind of bullshit his way out of this, but bullshitting his way out of it is essentially endorsing the work of the committee. So in the end, he has to take a more forceful stand, which is, you know, the moment when he leaves, leaves the room and tells them to, to go fuck yourself. So I think uh, my takeaway... Uh, to the front is, you know, to to people who want to rain down that kind of repression, uh, the proper response of go fuck yourself is, is, you know, sure, use it tactically. I mean, don't be foolish, but but uh, to the degree that the movie promotes that kind of spirit, you know, that's very helpful. Uh, and amid all the controversies, you know, that we confront now, 
Um, you know, it, you know, if you come to a moment of clarity where you know what right and wrong is, you know, you really do have to take the stand. Sometimes with Woody Allen, I feel like there is this level of and you're a writer. So you kind of you must have some experience of this is that if you're a creative person and you imagine scenarios and you write them out, they have a way of like either coming true or that there's something innate in you that recognized some latent possibility for tragedy or plus time equaling comedy in your life in a way that uh, that you that was predictive. And I just feel like sometimes Woody Allen wrote himself into the most absurd and brutal of his comedies with the last third of his life. Like he is the mm. author of this whether he's the author of it or not. And on a purely just artistic and philosophical level, I don't know, to me, like I said, he's he's almost gone. But to me, the questions that are raised by it are really exciting and worthy of all the work that went before. I don't feel like, I feel like his life is a Woody Allen comedy. It's just not really funny because we're too close to it. But eventually this is going to be the fodder for great comedy because he it's just weird it's super weird that yeah the woman from rosemary's baby is and the guy from annie hall and the front have done this to all of us <laughs> <laughs> just well and yeah and let's not even get started with roman Polanski. well right? yeah i mean yeah just it it's the whole cultural soup that's around it we could learn so much about ourselves from looking at it and unpacking it but it's too hot but if humanity were to survive for a hundred years and could look back on this just through the you know through history i feel like there could be great books written about it that would tell us about the 20th century things that we don't want to look at dear listener if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. One dream. One wish, one piece of mind. A podcast hosted by Nico White about One Piece by Acherio Oda on Paper House Network. We'll see you every Monday. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. Okay, folks, before we get back to my discussion with Aaron Leonard, I just wanted to let you know that next week, Brian and I will be celebrating Stephen Freer's The High-Low Country from 1998 and exploring the full filmography of this journeyman UK director. The High-Low Country is a tough one to find, but I highly recommend seeking it out and showing up ready to explore your deepest Freer's. 
for we have nothing to freer but freers himself. Sorry. So, Aaron, where can we find your writing and your work? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, the best, best thing to pick up in regard to this topic, The Front, is my book, The Folk Singers and the Bureau, which was just released uh, back in September. Uh, if you go to my website, AaronLeonard.net, uh, you can find ordering information. Or if you just Google The Folk Singers and the Bureau, an abundance of bookstores will come up where you can um, get a copy. Um, also, I, I talked with you, Andres, on your Radio 8 Ball show a couple months back about the book. So if folks want to tune into that, they can get more information about it. But AaronLeonard.net, if you're curious to learn more what uh, I've been writing and you know, pick up some of the work, that's the place to go. And do you remember what you asked on Radio 8 Ball? Uh, no, I do not. When you, because you ask, you know, on, on the show, we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting them like musical tarot cards. And we're currently using the Radio 8 Ball app to do our musical divinations. And you were on the show, that was in January. And you had a question... I'm trying to, I'm actually just looking on the website to see if I can find it. I remember you asked about Woody Guthrie. Didn't you ask, like, what would Woody Guthrie have to tell us today? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, and you got a song by Randy Kaplan called Wooden Arms. So it was like Woody and Wood and Arms. And uh, it was a a great, great little synchronicity. And uh, yeah, I, I do hope people check that out. We talked, if you enjoy listening to us talk about communism for an hour, then you're going to love listening to us talk about communism for another hour. <laughs> and and if you don't, you're probably not going to like it. <laughs> yeah. No, no. If you like, the, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's just good. You know, uh, it's where this is not, let's be clear. This is not the communist party, but you might say that it is a party. We're having a party and the, the conversation and the topic that we're discussing is, is communism. So it is a, a communist party in a little way. So if you if you're listening and anyone ever asks you, you'll have to say that you, you know, participated in a communist party activity. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Branded for life. I'm proud of it. <laughs> well, I guess uh well thanks for for being my guest co-host on this episode. And I hope people do check out your work, Aaron. And uh, now, uh, if we haven't made it abundantly clear, I, I do like to remind people at the end of every one of these that wherever you are, folks, just remember, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. They're willing to make a deal. Give them names, right? Look, they're being very reasonable. You don't have to give them more than one. Which one? It's up to you. Look, they've got you over a barrel. You can go to jail. What's one name? If it bothers you, give them Hecky Brown. Hecky? He's dead anyway. What difference does it make? The token's all they want. Something to show you cooperation. That's all. Is ready to proceed? Uh, Yes, ready, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Prince. I ask you for the record 
Did you know Herschel Brownstein? Howard, you go to jail. Also known as Hecky Brown? Be practical. Did you know this man is either Brown or Brownstein? Either name will do, Mr. Prince. Tell them. Brown or Brownstein? Just the name. Are you refusing to answer? I don't recognize the right of this committee to ask me these kind of questions. And furthermore, you can all go fuck yourselves. Fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you if you're young at heart. This episode is brought to you by Voodoo Ranger. It's beer. It's hoppy, trend-setting, innovative, served with a little sarcasm, just like Paperhouse Network. Paperhouse Network is hoppy? Uh, yeah. It's like beer for your ears. Get yourself a Voodoo Ranger!